A few weeks ago, when I preached in the morning services, I wanted to show us Christ as King and Savior. And this morning, God helping us, I want to try to show us Christ, show us the Lord as shepherd, as a faithful guide, as we actually live our lives day to day, and as we look into a new year, how do we live with hope and meaning and purpose and confidence? John Calvin made this claim. Ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries. And the knowledge of it, and with the knowledge of it, a real belief in it, the highest happiness. Now, when I read that, I thought, boy, to call it greatest and highest and all of those sorts of things, those are pretty extraordinary claims. Whatever you think of John Calvin and whatever you've heard of him, and a lot of what you've heard is probably not really actually true once you read him. He was a pastor. He was a scholar in God's Word. But he was devoted to understanding and teaching in a life-related way the Word of God, and living it out in his own life. And so he came to the place in the mature years of his thinking and reflection to say this, that whether or not you really know and understand and deeply believe in the doctrine of God's providence, that is, that he is wisely and lovingly control, in control ultimately of everything that happens, including everything that happens to you in your life. Whether or not you actually know and believe that doctrine is the key to the highest happiness. And the more I've lived and the more I've wrestled and the more I've struggled myself, the more I've come to believe that that's really true. That the key to a truly good life is to submit to God's Word and to trust in God's plan. And to believe what Romans 8.28, and that's the key passage. It's one of the most familiar ones, especially to Christians, to Christ followers. That's what Romans 8.28 is claiming. In a passage that's been talking about suffering, the Apostle Paul says, And we know. We, we are confident, that we're certain about this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works together for the good. That's the truth of God's providence. The Heidelberg Catechism is a great resource for understanding the Christian faith and life. And in its question 27, it asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? In other words, what's the definition of God's providence? And the answer it gives is, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures. And so rules them, that is, governs them, guides them, 
that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Charles Spurgeon was so powerful in applying God's truth to the lives of God's people. And in one of his devotionals, I think it was from his morning and evening devotional series, right at the heart of it, as he was expounding one of the psalms, he says this, and as I share this this morning, I hope you will really wrestle as always with, do I really believe this? Because if you're like me, we have the category, I know of what I'm supposed to believe. I know what's officially the company line, so to speak, in Christianity. But do I really believe this? Is this the way I look at life? And Spurgeon said this, Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Do you, like me, sometimes wish, I wish I was in a different situation. I wish I was in a different position. I wish I was in a different circumstance and condition of life. Spurgeon is echoing Romans 8, 28 when he writes this way. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. He didn't say, had any other condition been more comfortable for you. That you could well imagine. But he said, if it would have been better for you. We've got to figure out why and how that's really true. The Bible basis for this truth Romans 8, 28, I've already shared. Then just even about the details, the seemingly random things of life, Proverbs 16, says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We don't cast lots very much anymore, but it's saying every time you play Yahtzee and you roll the dice, the numbers that come up are always ultimately guided by God. It's every decision is from the Lord. Or Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God's providence in the Bible is all-encompassing. It's all-inclusive. And we might balk at that and try to reason against that at first, but as soon as we say, as we do say, he's almighty, he's all-powerful, we're essentially saying the same thing as we tried to share before. Nothing could happen if an all-powerful being didn't want it to. So whether we say he purposes or permits, and there can be a meaningful distinction, but still we're ultimately saying it's a part somehow of his plan. It comes from him. 
These are just three of dozens of passages that teach this truth of God's providence. And let me just reassure you on this doctrine of God's all-encompassing providential control of all persons and events, all of Orthodox Christianity is in agreement. I found resources that say the same thing from Catholics and Calvinists, from John Wesley to George Whitfield, John Piper to Warren Wearsby. Bible teachers all teach the same. God is ultimately and oft mysteriously in control, final control of all things. Embracing this truth, this reality of God's providence, of course becomes especially important, but also especially difficult as it relates to our troubles and our trials and our hardships. When bad things happen, do I still really believe ultimately in God's providence? If God is ultimately in control of all that happens, then what does this say about the bad things that happen to us, the painful things? Here again, the Bible though does still affirm God's ultimate control. Wasn't that one of the major lessons we learned from Pastor Don's series in the book of Job? Reflected in Job's assertion, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In both the giving and the taking away, Job sees the invisible hand of God's providence. Romans 8, 28, Ephesians 1, 11, we already quoted both of those passages speak of all things. And I don't have time to pursue this point. I've done that in prior teaching times. This morning I'm committed to us getting to the so what applications of this truth in our lives. Now let me make one important distinction as it relates to God's providential control over the hardships and troubles that come into our lives. There is the category of divine discipline that comes as punishment for specific sin. Paul talks about that in connection with the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Those who are participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and we don't have time to pursue all that that means, but he says concerning them, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that's why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, died. So for another time, there is the truth that sometimes our hardships are a direct divine discipline against specific willful sin. The man born blind in John chapter 9, Jesus was asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? So there is that category. But this morning, I don't have this kind of divine discipline primarily in mind. Instead, God's providential action in our lives that is aimed at our growth and development in faith, in virtue, in purpose, and perseverance. It's the kind of trial that's meant to be like the refiner's fire 
that purges out the dross of our sin and our selfishness and our pettiness and our worldliness and our disordered loves and misdirected desires. Peter says these trials have come not because God is angry with you. He's not punishing you for something specific, but rather so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Back in Romans 8, when it says that God causes all things to work together for the good, the good that Paul has in mind, he says just a couple of phrases later, is being conformed to the image of his Son. That's what matters most. Not that God make me comfortable now. Not that God make me happy on my own terms. But that God make me Christ-like. Because Christ-likeness in character, conduct, and commitment to living for the glory of God, that's true human flourishing. And that's the means to get to our ultimate, truest happiness. We've got to be turned into, fitted into, molded into beings who are going to like the life of heaven. Well, let me tell you, in eternal heaven, everybody loves holiness and everybody loves obedience and everybody delights in doing God's will. You and I aren't quite like that yet. And so God's getting us more and more ready, fitted for the life of eternity in his presence as we're being more and more conformed to the image of his son. But perhaps the clearest, fullest passage for this is Hebrews chapter 12, beginning around verse 5. Here the inspired writer says this. My son, my child, do not lose heart when he rebukes you. The rebuke that takes the form of a hardship. Because the Lord disciplines whom? The one he loves. And he chastens whom? Everyone he accepts and welcomes as his son. Endure hardship. And this is the key. How do we interpret the hardship? If we interpret it, God doesn't love me. I don't have his favor anymore. I've sinned against him too often. Now I'm out of his kindness. I'm out of his mercy. I've worn it out. I've used up my allotment. If we interpret hardship that way, we will lose heart. We'll lose a heart. We'll lose heart for pursuing holiness. We'll lose heart for thinking that anything in life really matters. Don't interpret it that way. Verse 7 says, endure hardship as discipline. The word means child rearing, which fits with what he says next. God is treating you as, not as enemies, God is treating you as his children. 
For what children are not disciplined by their father? Later, God disciplines us in that passage for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. The same thing we learn from Romans chapter 8. We've got to get convinced. My true good is to get more holy. That is, to become the kind of person who loves the right things, who's devoted to the right things, who loves God most. When I get my loves in order and in alignment, that's when I'll truly thrive. And that's when I'll truly be happy. Selfish sinners that we are, it feels painful for that to get worked on. Even though it's no good for us, like a malignant tumor that we've got to get rid of, that's a painful process, but it's still a health-giving one. No discipline, verse 11, seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. That is, for those who let God's surgical work through hardship do what it's supposed to do, it's productive. It turns you more righteous. Right in your relating to God, right in your relating to others, right in your relating to the callings and the opportunities and the obligations in your life. You want to be righteous when you understand it that way. It turns you more and more into a person of peace, of shalom, of flourishing and delight, who lives the way we're supposed to. This is probably the most crucial point. The point that in my own life <clears throat> and how I looked at my life, I was getting wrong in a fundamental way. <clears throat> Misinterpreting my hardships was destroying my actual confidence in God's love for me and therefore eroding my trust in Him that should have been fueling a responding love and devotion to him. You think of the things that have been hardest in your life as I have in mind those things for myself. I thought that those hardships I experienced in life were somehow proof that God didn't really love me or love me anymore, that I didn't really have his favor that he couldn't really be trusted to do me good and to bring me to happiness. And I based that all on the evidence as I misinterpreted it of the hardships. But passages like these began, and I say began because it's still a work in process, began to turn all that kind of thinking upside down. Because these kinds of passages were telling me that my hardships were not evidence that God didn't love me. In fact, they were evidence of just the opposite. He is interacting with you. He is relating to you as his children. 
And he wants you to grow up into maturity so that you can grow up in happiness. The hardships were evidence that I was and am loved by God. The writer says there in Hebrews, if you're supposedly a child and you get no discipline, then you must not have a dad. Because dads, loving, wise dads, discipline. If you're not experiencing any of the divine child rearing, then you must be illegitimate. We know the word for that, but you're not. God is a loving, just, wise father who has set about to raise me well, like a loving parent does, with the child-rearing actions that I need specifically to mold me into a child of his who would be obedient, mature, loving, godly, and good. He was disciplining and discipling me for my own good, the good of sharing in his holiness, fitting me for heaven. So do you see how crucial it is for us to not misinterpret the meaning of our troubles and of our hardships? Now the Bible gives us two crucial examples that this is how God actually works. He get, that gives us more than two, but two especially. And we've talked about them before. That God works for the good in everything. But just to remind you quickly, Joseph. Hardship, mistreatment, abuse by his brothers, sold into slavery, languishing again and again and again. All kinds of undeserved, unfair hardship and suffering intended by loved ones, or what should have been loved ones, his own family. But eventually, God is working together for good and he gets Joseph to the position where he's second in all of Egypt so that when famine hits the Holy Land and the line of Messiah is threatened, to die off by starvation, they've got a champion back in all places in Joseph. And God has orchestrated, and it's taken decades before he enacts the plan. But now Joseph is in a place to save, to rescue. And so he draws the conclusion there in Genesis 50, talking to his brothers. You intended what you did for evil, and it was evil. Divine sovereignty doesn't cancel out human responsibility or accountability. You intended it for evil. But, Joseph is in essence saying, you're not ultimately in control. God is. And God intended what you did for good to accomplish what is now being accomplished, the saving of many lives. And the ultimate fulfillment of the saving of many lives doesn't just mean Joseph's father and brothers, does it? I've already said it means the line of Messiah through whom the Savior of the world would come. God was doing all of that. 
you think that Joseph could have possibly seen, possibly understood that as he's being thrown down into that pit? Absolutely not. As he's being lied about by Potiphar's wife? Absolutely not. We have to realize something really, really important here too. When we say that God is always working for the good, we need to recognize that there are going to be all kinds of time when we can't understand or see what the good is. The Bible says so much of the time in this life, in this world, we walk by faith, not by sight, not by seeing. But it's a well-grounded faith because we trust in a God who can orchestrate things the way he orchestrated it in the case of Joseph and even more so in the case of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, talking about Jesus, Peter says, This man was handed over to you for beating, for, for crucifixion, the worst, the worst kind of death. When you read about it, it's just horrible. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to his cross. And I say it again, which is it? Human responsibility, their wickedness in putting him to death? Yes. Or God's sovereignty? Yes, also. Because it all happened according to God's deliberate plan. And Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 express it as clearly as possible when they add, they, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they did, and they're praying now, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. I don't know how the doctrine, the reality that God is ultimately in control could possibly be stated any more clearly than in the fact that the worst thing that human beings has ever done, the murder of the Son of God, was what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. But did God orchestrate that for good? Absolutely. It's the good of your salvation. It's the good of the redemption of the entire cosmos. Satan, you intended it for evil, and it was evil, and you'll end up in the lake of fire for doing it. But God intended it for good, for the saving of many, 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 many lives. The ones that are singing now in heaven as the book of Revelation describes it. Now let me say in the midst of all of this that we have to recognize that there is mystery in the interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Let me remind you one more time that if the God you know is a God that you can fully figure out, it's not the God who actually exists because the Bible says his ways are past searching out. Please leave room for mystery in your thinking about the ways and attributes of God. Let me say too, there is mystery when it comes to the amount and the intensity of suffering in the world. Those who believe in Romans 8.28 don't encounter every kind of hardship and trial as, oh well, it had to happen, bound to happen. 
That's not how it works in a fallen world. It is still painful. The proof of that to me ultimately is Jesus in Gethsemane. Jesus was sinless, including in motive and thought. And even though he ultimately embraced what he knew to be God's providential plan for him in the suffering of the cross, even the sinless Son of God is horrified at the prospect of it in Gethsemane. And he begs and he pleads, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And so I fully expect that in our experience as believers, there will time, there will be times when we beg and plead, take this away. Like Paul did with his thorn in the flesh. But a wise father watches and knows what's best for the ultimate good and decides differently. Even like you who've been, even though you were evil, Jesus says, but you're still parents, you're still fathers, and you choose things and you've chosen things for your loved children that they didn't want and they hated and they rebelled against, but you knew it was ultimately the best, so you stuck to it. That's what God does. Some of the suffering of some people, including in this church, and I watch it, and I think, man, day after day, that's their life. And it seems too much and too hard. But I'm not as wise as God is wise by a long shot. And I don't love them as wisely and well as he loves them. So there is mystery to all of this. But we've got an anchor for still believing it's true in the story and the record of the Bible with people like Joseph and especially people like Jesus. So what you and I are called to do, maybe way more than we like to, is walk by faith, by trust in this God, not by sight, not by getting it, understanding it, comprehending it. Walk by faith, not by explanations. So I want to turn to the so what. I've already implied them, I hope. But how do we truly apply our belief in God's sovereign, providential control of all things to the actual circumstances of our lives? The same Heidelberg Catechism, how does the knowledge of God's providence help us gives the answer, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. Because all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. I wish you had more time, but you know that includes the people in your lives, the difficult people in your lives. Somehow God works even through them. Remember when Pilate says, you're not even going to answer me? Don't you know that I have the power to let you go? Or Jesus says what? You would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. That difficult family member, that difficult boss, whoever it might be, they're responsible, believe me, for their actions, and they'll one day give an account. 
But simultaneously, they've been put into your life for God's good purposes. So don't superstitiously give them a power that they don't possess. Realize even then, they're instruments in God's plan. It applies to your attitude, to your job. Elizabeth Elliot says this, This job has been given to me by God to do, therefore it is a gift, therefore it is a privilege, therefore it is an offering I make to God, therefore it is to be done gladly if it's done for Him. I really want to give time, and I might go a little bit over, but that's like, hey, 2021 in some ways is going to be uh, like other years. I do want to share this illustration by way of application. The application of believing deeply in divine providence is, and I've shared this somewhat before, you're not allowed to pout. One of the times I've told you I was having a great time with uh, some friends in the church, and they had a little girl, and I'm guessing she was about four at that time, and they were playing games, and it was going well, and everybody was having fun until they weren't having fun because the little girl stopped winning the game. And that's when most of us go sour. And at that time, she started to kind of get sulky. She started to kind of pout. And I don't know why it just hit me. But the dad, who was great with his kids, great with playing with them, probably a little overcompetitive, but other than that. But anyway... He said, and I won't say the names, but he said, you're not allowed to pout. And I thought, wait a minute, you can't command emotions, you can't control emotions, but we can, can't we? You're allowed to lament, you're allowed to mourn when there's real evil in the world, absolutely. You're allowed to feel that, you're allowed to weep. But you're not allowed to pout. You're not allowed to sulk. You're not allowed to indulge your discontent so that day after day you live in a defeated, despondent kind of way with your portable resentments and discontents spilling out and weaponized against everybody around you. When you act and respond that way, you're saying, God's doing a terrible job in my life, in my circumstances. Or I wouldn't be experiencing what I'm experiencing. You're not allowed to pout. You're called and I'm called to, in the midst of our challenges, to believe that God is doing a good thing ultimately so I'm going to plan, and I'm going to act enterprisingly, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to sow good seed, and I'm going to entrust myself to the one who judges justly, and I'll recognize that grumbling and complaining and murmuring is, as one pastor says, a protest against God's providence in our lives. This truth applies to us. It implies to the people in our lives that we care about as well. Finally, the return of the reign of God is the ultimate divine answer to our divine hardships. 
And again, before, because of time, just let me say, one day, if you keep hanging on and if you keep trusting, not very long from now, the Bible keeps calling it a little while, do you know you're going to end up at a place in the kingdom of God with endless, forever, full happiness that you entirely don't deserve? So that's something. Believe in God's providence. Not believing in it is the greatest of all miseries. Believing in it deeply brings the highest happiness. As Dan comes to sing this final song, think of what it is that the thorn is in your life that you've looked at in the past in the wrong way. But now this morning, you want to start thinking of it differently. A way that God is powerfully at work for your good. Amen.